Oh my God, what a presidential debate. Oh, just kidding. <laughs> we are back in the green room and uh, we're with our awesome guest. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Vala Ashar, our producer, Elle, uh, and more importantly, our guest. We're going to introduce them quickly in reverse order before we start the show. If you're watching as well, this show is broadcast, uh, sponsored by Robots and Pencils. Check them out. Uh, very cool design firm in Canada doing innovation digital. And of course, uh, you can check out their website at Robots and Pencils. Uh, but more importantly, uh, we've got some cool guests. So... Jeremy, where are you dialing in from and what are you going to be talking about? Well, coming in here from TrendHunter.com, headquarters Toronto, talking about the future chaos and the reality that your next big idea is so close within your grasp, and yet our neurological traps block us from seeing what we could do. Pretty relevant in a time of chaos and change, where consumer needs are changing by the minute, and your next level is so close within your grasp. All right, we're going to be waiting for him. He's going to be showing up third on the agenda. Mark, what are you talking about today? So today Thanks we're going to talk about, Dubai. yeah, from Dubai, I'm, uh, I'm actually going to talk about the fourth industrial revolution, the rise of artificial intelligence, what to scare, what to be afraid of, and what not to be afraid of, and also on the resilience we need to survive the post-pandemic world. It's just all a part of a menu, and it's a vegan menu as well. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Beating Skynet and being able to survive. All right, Amy, what are we talking about and where are you, call, where are you calling in from? From Indianapolis, Indiana. And uh, we're talking about uh, the power of unsolicited feedback and why that is way better than surveys and how to use unsolicited feedback and harness it to answer your most burning questions. Awesome. Very, very cool. All right, I guess. All right. Do the honors, Elle. Ready to go. <laughs> Three, two, one. Hello, and uh, welcome to Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guest your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research, he is the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business and is currently working on his next book. He's regularly on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, Bloomberg, everywhere. Every week I see him on TV. He's a regular contributor to ZDN at Harvard Business Review and in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. We're with my awesome co-host with such a generous introduction all the time. Um, Vala is the person to follow if you're looking for inspiration and innovation. One of the top followers for CEOs, CMOs, and CIOs around the world. And not more importantly, he's a keynote speaker. He's on broadcast TV. And you should check out his ZDNet column where he summarizes what goes on here at Disrupt TV and beyond in terms of the industry. So, But hey, it's not about us. It's also about our wonderful guests and also our wonderful sponsor, Robots and Pencils, who's actually helping us. Uh, really talk about what's happening in the future. Look to them for mobile design, and of course, innovation work. Um, so with that, who do we got here first today? What's coming, Vala? Ray, it's our privilege to have Amy Brown, founder and CEO of Authentics, uh, the software platform that analyzes, activates patients' voices at scale to reveal transformational opportunities in healthcare. Boy, do we need that right now. Amy built her career as a rising executive in the healthcare industry, during which time she advocated for underserved populations, led and mobilized teams to expand healthcare coverage to thousands of Indiana residents and learn nuances of corporate operations. Two years ago, 2018, Amy decided to leverage her decades of industry experience to tackle healthcare through technology. She founded Authentics, which mission is to bring the authentic voice of the patient into the boardroom and increase positive healthcare outcomes. You can follow Amy's work on Twitter at A-M-Y-A-U-T-H-E-N-T-I-C-X. Amy Authentics. Welcome, Amy, to Disrupt TV. Thanks. It's great to be here. Hey, we're so happy to have you here. And, and you know, your tagline's awesome. Humanizing customer interactions at scale, right? I mean, that's something very, very important. And in healthcare, it seems impersonal most of the time. Um, and when it is personal, you're not sure exactly how much of that you're going to get. And so when we think about customer experience and feedback today, 
uh, and especially how do you get unsolicited customer feedback? Like, how do we get there, right? Because it's one of the biggest challenges, getting the right, honest feedback from people because, you know, people are caught off guard. There's not always being honest. They don't know if they can actually tell the truth or what's going to happen in terms of getting that customer experience and customer feedback. So how do we solve that? And, and how do we go beyond surveys and speech? That's right. So a whole industry has cropped up around listening and the entire thing is based on solicited feedback. Um, corporations think that in order to know what a customer thinks about their company, their brand, uh, their customer experience, they have to ask them. And the problem with that is that just asking the question on the part of the company is biased from the get-go. And it's asking the question that you, the company, wants to hear the answer to, rather than listening for what's top of mind of the customer. And so the way you get at it is you listen to the unsolicited feedback that is provided all day, every day, uh, by the millions uh, in recorded interactions that come into contact centers. And in, in healthcare, it's, it's much more complex of a conversation than say when you call your credit card company to check on the status of your bill. Um, it, healthcare conversations are chock full of vulnerable uh, conversations about people getting access to their care, um, how they're going to afford to pay their bills, uh, how they find a physician that's going to treat them the way they need to be treated. Um, it, it, they're much more complex conversations. And the fact of the matter is, is that for every one recorded conversation, there are three, at least three clues on average that are dropped by customers about why they're coming to this brand, what make them stay and why they're going to leave. So um, it seems like one of the power of unsolicited feedback is rich contextual intelligence that you can glean from your client, your patient, that uh, traditional methods like surveys or even um, you know speech recognition technology may not be able to fully understand and, and capture. Um, you know, there, there is a, there, you know, as we all know, there is a healthcare crisis, there's an economic crisis, there's a racial inequality crisis and misinformation. So there's a trust deficit. So I can imagine that being able to extract as much information as you can when you are present or engaged with a patient, it's critically important for the organization to capture as much valuable insights as possible. Can, can you talk about, uh, is, it, is it sentiment analysis, tone analysis? What are some of the dimensions and key words, perhaps, that, that your technology looks at in order to enrich the understanding of the patient needs and then perhaps proactively uh, deliver service? Right, so uh, most of our clients already have implemented some form of speech analytics. And what we hear from them day in, day out is that you know what, a key, a, a slew of keywords doesn't give me enough context to know what action to take. Um, and so while it's great to know that, you know, 20% of my customers today use the word frustrated in a conversation, it really doesn't tell me why they were frustrated, what led up to that frustration and what I need to do about it. And so the, the leaders that I talk to are really tired with the solutions that are available to them today. And so what we do is we use speech analytics as a tool, just a tool. It, 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 it simply takes a large data set and helps surface themes that are either most prevalent um, or it combines sentiment-based words with topical-based words that customers care about listening for. And then we curate samples of interactions that contain the content that is most important to our clients and then we feed them through the rest of our platform that is designed to allow really easy NLP enabled understanding. So we truly allow leaders to listen, um, to, to, to hear segments of audio files that speak to the content that they care most about without having to hunt and peck through a major telephony platform to find you know, the, the gold. And that's really our goal is to to bring um, the most relevant content uh, with a literal customer voice um, to, to leaders all day, every day. 
You know what's interesting is that you're almost building like this intake engine, uh, a CDP on the back end, and then the ability to actually um, figure out next best action and recommendations here, right? And and the problem it seems like, and which is which is unusual um, in in some industries, is that in healthcare people don't always provide direct feedback, um, and which is which has been the interesting thing, right? Like in any in other industry, they'll be like, oh, that sucks, right? And they'll be really upfront about it. But but when it's your doctor or when it's healthcare and your life's at stake, people are a little bit more guarded and 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 not likely to go jump out and say, yeah, that was awful. And by the way, you're still treating me <laughs> because my yeah, life's in your hands. You know, It's like, like when, you're sitting, when you're sitting to get your hair cut, you know, and you're noticing in the mirror that you don't really like what's, what they're doing, but they're the ones with the scissors. So if you give real-time feedback, like... <laughs> There's, there's no, so, so it's the ambient experience. That's, what, that's why I've been cutting my own hair for the last five years, by the way. <laughs> he took matters into his own hands. Um, so, the, the experience. Exactly right. But you know what? In healthcare, so here's the deal. You know, those conversations in the doctor's office are not recorded, right? They're not recorded. They shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. That would be completely intrusive and inappropriate. However, there's a lot of recorded conversations that surround that doctor visit. There's the scheduling call. There's the um, the call to pre-register for a uh, surgery. And there's the post-discharge call when you're discharged from the hospital. Guess what? Uh, patients tell the uh, billing clerk what they thought of their doctor. Yes, they do. They do. And, and that's great feedback, right? Yeah, they talk about the facility. They talk about what they like about the online portal. And when you aggregate those themes, you can get some really powerful feedback that are super actionable because you have all the context around that conversation. That's pretty powerful. So, Amy, uh, uh, can you talk to us about um, what you've noticed from, let's say, January, February uh, engagement with healthcare providers and then March to present day? uh COVID and then what you anticipate based on what you notice now in terms of what may be the upcoming winter months and what may be um you know some say potentially a second wave. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you what's top of mind uh for for patients customers right now? Yeah we noticed in it was really fascinating to watch the speech patterns and the words used around COVID um, starting in February, March, April, and beyond. Like in the very beginning, early March and April, people were not using the words pandemic or COVID or coronavirus. They were using language like, with what's going on right now, I don't know what's going on. It was, it was this kind of sense of lostness. And then as the month progressed, now it had a name, COVID, coronavirus, the virus. And so it was really fascinating at a really large level to look at how speech and how, how people even spoke about the virus changed. But when we drill in and, and really listen to the issues around those words, um, the, the top of mind things post-COVID in those early months were things like contraction risk. So, hey, I'm on a maintenance medication for diabetes and some other uh, illnesses I have. Am I at a higher risk? Do I need to stop taking my regular medications because I might catch coronavirus? So a lot of patients were wanting to know how they should change their own healthcare regimen to protect themselves from the virus. And they were expecting people at insurance companies to have answers for them, which is which is a lot, uh, and, and the insurance company wasn't prepared for those questions. The second was around supply chain. Uh, we had in the beginning stages, you know, customers wanting to order a bunch of medication because they were afraid that, um, you know, there would be a supply chain issue and they wouldn't get access or there was mail issues, et cetera. And so just a lot of kind of that hoarding behavior we saw at the retail store, we also saw in healthcare. Um, and we also are seeing, you know, customers not knowing when to um, reconvene their regular healthcare activities that existed pre-COVID. And so in the months ahead, you asked Vala, you know, what, what do I expect? Customers are much more tuned in and engaged in, in managing their own healthcare than ever before. And they are counting on healthcare companies to have answers to their questions. And so we had a 
up the game on these call center representatives to give them access to resources so they can actually answer those customers' questions, have your supply chain in order, have answers to the questions about those things, and also be prepared for the flu season. There's gonna be a lot of questions that customers have about how having the flu or your risk of flu uh, intersects with the COVID uh, risk and, and we gotta have answers for them. So if there's a word cloud for the next couple of months, flu shot might be the biggest word in the word cloud? Flu shot, um, can I get my refill early? Um, uh, will I catch it? I mean, those are the types of things that we're, we're seeing in our board clubs. Got it. Wow. Well, wow. you know what's really interesting, too, is uh, you've, you actually put out a survey recently about some of those top things that are popping out. It's your 2020 customer survey. Uh, and what's, what's interesting about it, you know, you have, you have a bunch of reports uh, that talk about five key trends uh, in terms of unsolicited feedback that, that you keep popping up. Uh, do you want to hit them and, and share a little, little bit of uh, what, you, you know, what you found? Yeah, we found um, that customers want companies to meet them halfway um, on the on the financial obligations, right? So, um, look, <laughs> a lot of people are without work. Uh, they want to stay healthy, but they cannot afford their premiums or pay the same way they have. So they're looking for healthcare companies to work with them and and be flexible with payment options and those types of things. Uh, contraction risk, which I've already touched on, is a key theme. You know, help. Uh, customers know how to protect themselves in these really high risk times. Um, it's really important that call center agents are prepared for the weightiness of these ca callers. Believe it or not, if you call kind of a standard customer service line in healthcare, those representatives are hearing things like, I've lost my job, I've lost my dad to COVID, I, I don't know how I'm going to feed my kids. I mean, it's, it's like you, you know, these are social work type issues that are coming in at your front line. So be dialed in to um, what it means to show empathy and authenticity in those phone calls that might be a five minute phone call that feels like a lifeline to that customer. So just some of the, some of the highlights. No, that's Amy, really great. Do you think your platform can be used, authentic technology can be used in the future as an early warning system, meaning you now have pattern recognition based on a pandemic and the type of conversations. Could you localize that so if there's a potential breakout in South Dakota, I'm just picking a location, you're able, your technology is able to say, look, we're starting to see signals where people are asking about fatigue or, or certain symptoms that, are, that potentially could correlate to unusual activity is that something that you think could be the future of your company in terms of really getting, uh, you know, the, the, the healthcare industry ahead of what might be the next, you know, uh, unfortunate event like what we've experienced this year? Absolutely. Um, I've worked in healthcare operations for uh, over 20 years, and we always knew that the front line was where the very first indicators of anything that was going on, right? The call center representative heard it first, but the problem was there wasn't technology to kind of surface those things to the leaders. And at the agent level, the ones taking the calls, their job is to fix that problem and one and done and move on to the next one. So they're they're, they're not paid to like surface these big themes, right? right. And so right. exactly what our what our company and this type of technology does is it can help um, not only say what's going on today, it can help predict what's going to be happening based on these um, kind of grassroots, uh, uh, you know, conversations. Yeah, no, it's a great point. And, and it's a great point. And, and when we think about, you know, where that future is headed, um, I mean, the signal intelligence Val is talking about, I mean, I mean, if you're early enough and if you're enough systems, I mean, there's so many things you can do, right? You can tell if there's a problem with a patient. You can tell if there's like an outbreak that's going on. You can tell if, you know, something happened with just overall quality. Um, you, you can get information before you get an MMR and, and uh, sort of morbidity mortality report. And, and, and suddenly you have some very interesting things that pop up. So this is pretty exciting in terms of what's happening. So what's next, right? Like, uh, you know, how'd you get started? Like, we never asked you, but like, how'd you get started with the company? Like, you know, why'd you do this? I mean, we can start with the basics here. So. My husband asked me that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so. 
You know, I am, I'm a mom of four. I, uh, my husband's been a stay at home dad for 12 years. And um, yet, uh, you know, as I was working the corporate thing, I just hit a point in my life where I was like, you know, this isn't, this isn't my destination. And while I realized that, I also was seeing this massive problem where we have this disconnect between leaders who are trying to make big strategic decisions and this front line that have the keys to the kingdom, like all the answers to the burning questions. And I just, it was the combination of, I've got to do this to say that I've lived my life to the fullest and I see a problem that I can go solve. And um, so I went all in in 2018 and it's been the best ride uh, of my life, albeit the scariest. Well done. Well done. That's awesome. So, hey, thank you so much for uh, being here. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. I, I think it's very, very cool to you know, get a perspective of what's happening, especially in healthcare tech and feedback and, and where customer experiences are going. We're with, here with Amy Brown, CEO at Authentics. You can follow her on Twitter at Amy Authentics. Um, and it's at A-U-T-H-E-N-T-I-C-I-X. I think I got it right. <laughs> so, yeah. So thanks for being on the show and thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Amy. Cool. Thank you such an important uh, capability, especially now. Uh, it's uh, our privilege uh, for Ray and I uh, to have our next guest here, someone we've been following on social forever. So it's awesome to have him here in person. Mark Esposito, author, co-founder and chief learning officer at Nexus Frontier Tech. Mark is recognized internationally as a top global thought leader in matters related to the fourth industrial revolution, the changes and opportunities that technology will bring to a variety of industries. Mark is co-founder, chief learning officer at Nexus Frontier Tech, an AI scale-up firm dedicated to help businesses become more efficient and competitive by introducing the latest data management science. He's a global expert of the World Economic Forum and advisor to Prince. He's the co-author of best-selling uh, uh, book, uh, Understanding How the Future Unfolds, using drive uh, to harness the power of today's megatrends and the AI Republic, which we're going to talk about. Mark was uh, inducted in 2016 on the Radar Thinkers 50 as one of the 30 most prominent rising business thinkers in the world. He's a global expert uh, and advises national uh, nations and governments. In his academic career, Mark has held academic appointments for some of the world's leading institutions, Harvard University, University of Cambridge, Arizona State University, Thunderbird School of Global Management, Halt International Business School, and IE Business School. He's an awesome follow on Twitter. Please follow him at EXP underscore Mark, M-A-R-K. Welcome, Mark, to the Shrub TV. Thanks so much, Valen. Thanks so much, Ray. I, I guess you have no idea how much I've been looking forward to this. Like I felt like a, a kid going to the talk fair looking for the candies, and then people asking, why are you so happy? So I'm going on TV today with two really cool guys. <laughs> Oh, awesome. Awesome. Uh, it's so an honor to have, to have you. Here. Thank you. Yeah. And, and more importantly, like, thanks for staying up late to be on the show. I mean, it's, 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 it's almost midnight in Dubai. So really appreciate yeah, it. You know, you've been, so. yeah, you've no, no, been go ahead, right, the early people. You've been one of the early people talking about the fourth industrial revolution. What are the important pieces behind that? Really thinking about, you know, where data plays a role in this, how people are pulling that together, how other technologies are actually driving that fourth industrial revolution. Um, so, so help us define, let, let's take a baseline check because we've been talking yes. about this for a little bit. Where are we in terms of defining the fourth industrial revolution and its relevance today? Because some people are like, I didn't even experience the third revolution. How do we get to the fourth? Right. So let's, Right. You know, uh, right. I would say the fourth industrial revolution is an aspirational concept. Is where we would like to go. Is the 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 power of technology to address some of the world leading challenges or rising challenges, and it's the fact that you're really using technology to augment humans rather than using technology to augment machines, which I think is, is some of the conversations sometimes we have that I can't really. Uh, wrap my head around is the ability for technology which is interoperable to start having some some form of intelligence but it's nothing like our intelligence we use the term of intelligence because it's easy for us to recognize traits but it's just about how technology can really uh, uh, propel us into a, a much more um, I think worth 
living period of our history. And it goes into looking at artificial intelligence and what we can do with this that, that technology. Uh, example of this would be, for example, could we use AI to forecast COVID uh, scenarios or climate change? It goes into, for example, uh, small medium enterprises where you have in the idea of the portable enterprise, where more and more people could eventually have access to technology so that they could lift and represent their business globally, regardless of the size. So to me, the fourth industrial revolution is really where we should be going. Um, some country got it. They understand it. They understood that technology is no longer just a nice to have, but it's what will define the competitive necessity of countries. Other countries are still uh, debating whether technology is just a means to, to an end. And I think we need to help them to understand that today, no business is actually is can survive without technology. And even if you don't know about it, Every business is a technology business, one way or the other. And if you don't know about it, you probably are just providing data. So there, there's so much about the fourth IR that I think it really needs to be understood. I am, uh, I always been a techno optimist. And I thought if we could really use the power of technology to address some of the world challenges, I think we're going to really leave a 21st century where we're gonna leave some of the dark, dark stories behind. <laughs> You know, it, this notion of blending of the physical world and the digital world uh, as, as one of the, uh, you know, uh, core uh, uh, pieces behind fourth industrial revolution. A lesson we certainly all learned, all businesses this year was, uh, you know, uh, how little we valued the power of decentralization. Because overnight, <laughs> we went to a decentralized digital only world due to the pandemic. Yeah. And so the ability to create value at the speed of need in this decentralized model caught a lot of businesses off guard. They were not designed for movement. They did not have a technology-oriented mindset. So agility and adaptability simply crushed many businesses of all sizes. So, you know, when you think about the fact that we had McKinsey lead research on our show a month or so ago, and he said, we experienced 10 years of e-commerce adoption just in the last three months. Now, as you said, an important lesson in 2020 is every company needs to be a digital company, which means you do have to, you know, obviously culture, talent, process, but you do need to lean into technology to stay relevant. Can you give us some examples in the last seven months where agility was important and, uh, and you have some examples of companies that, you know, perhaps were able to demonstrate resiliency in the fourth industrial revolution because they were designed for movement and agility? Right. So, well, I think the, the key of your question is that um, anyone through the pandemic had an opportunity to say, what shall I do with this? Shall I buy stand and see whether when distance is out? Or uh, am I going to become a direct architect of the transformation required? And I think ag agility and the ability to rapidly reorganize your, your capacity to meet the new demand, I think it was uh, critical. Technology helped us to get there. As you said, I see uh, the, the pandemic as like an eco chamber that has created an enormous acceleration of years in so many different areas. So there are companies, and let's talk about the big one, everybody understands, Walmart. Walmart has used the pandemic to rapidly become a platform. They have used the pandemic to understand that the brick and mortar could suffer um, a lockdown of the physical world, but the online retailing actually would prosper in a, in a lockdown of the physical world. So one of the companies that I have seen rising at a very fast pace, and it was April, when I was running a workshop for Walmart, in, in actually through their Indian subsidiaries, and they were trying to understand how do we cope with this? And clearly technology was one of those, those answers. So this is an example. But let's go into the, those guys that hardly are represented by case studies, right? There were like hairdressers in San Francisco, that decided because of people needing to have a haircut, to have a haircut actually um, a tutorial on Zoom for 55 bucks. And then suddenly I was thinking, I could have done this if they're not happy with this. The, the demand is so large nonetheless, right? So the idea that you're a hairdresser and you're completely trapped into the, the limbo of not being able to operate your business. And now you think I'm gonna teach you how to have your haircut on Zoom. These are the kind of example I think that we need to really bring forward because it shows that if technology is collectively orchestrated in the right way, it can really lift millions of people out of the limitation of the physical world. But I always like to remind that it's, technology is a collective design that is not neutral. It, we want to create a specific outcome. This is why these days 
the social dilemma is becoming so popular because it talks about the clear intentionality of using technology for a purpose that we don't necessarily like. So these are, for example, two examples, Vala, right? A large company like Walmart and the hairdresser in San Francisco, they really understood that by transforming their, their capacity into something more digitally friendly, they could really capture a capacity or market that they actually could have never dream of. And this is, I think, the, the main takeaway from events like this, which I guess is just the first of a wave of events that we have to start getting used because systemic challenges will, will keep coming our way. I love the SMB example, and I would pay $55 if somebody could teach me how to have raised hair. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I paid $55 to have a pair of scissors and try to figure out what to do with it, and I decided to go just wild, right? Because I could not dare, right? Because I understood that I'm not three-dimensional, right? I'm only, the mirror is just what I see. What happened to the bag, right? So, you know what? Just let me, let me go wild for a while. And I'm growing the beard as well. So they'll, they'll think that, that I, I'm cast away on an island somewhere. So, so, so getting out of the scissors ecosystem and the haircut ecosystem and the... Uh, <laughs> um, there, there is something interesting that, that is happening, though, and, and, and you brought up the, the social dilemma here. And, and when we think about when we build out the fourth industrial revolution, there's a series of core infrastructure, critical infrastructures, the way that we view roads okay. and highways or the way we view electricity production um, that mm -hmm. isn't addressed in terms of what is that common core infrastructure? Is that proprietarily owned? Is that publicly owned? Um, and and, and what, where, where does that play a role in this? And, and I think we're just trying, we're grasping through this, trying to figure out what role we play. And, and there's some systems, for example, like in China, where they are providing that critical infrastructure to the public and using that as part of their foreign policy initiative. Um, mm -hmm. And there are other models where in the US where we're kind of saying that that's completely on the private side to go build, especially when we look at this type of infrastructure and we're starting to get into a clash. Where do you see mm -hmm. this headed in the long run? Great question, uh, right? So for example, I'm in Dubai and one of the reasons why I'm here is also because I just finished a project with the government on the digital infrastructure. So your question really helps me to uh, spell it out, right? I think there is there is a clear uh, tension between the physical world and the digital one. And we think that they're two separate constructs. I guess the conversation should be, how do I now create a bridge from the physical world to becoming some form of digital architecture? So let me give you an example. If you're a hospital and you're dealing with running what the hospital does, that is ingrained in the physical world. But if the hospital start collecting information and start utilizing data to improve performances, and now we're using the data set because we have in some machine learning algorithm to understand, for example, predictive models of behavior, we turn the hospital into a hybrid between physical and digital. So we, it's really a hybrid infrastructure. I see this trend happening primarily in countries that are young countries, countries like this, which is 50 years old, or countries that actually really don't have so much inherited uh, friction from the past. I see this a little bit harder in countries like the US or Europe, where we got so many inherited layers. But for example, the African continent could leapfrog in no time in going from the absence of infrastructure to the rise of a digital infrastructure, a hybrid one. And the idea of smart infrastructure, I think, is really where we can start uh, pioneering and pivot a lot. I would imagine this is probably what will happen in some country with uh, the pandemic, where the the, the halt on the uh, physical world, where, for example, you're thinking about real um, real estate for commercial purposes, the fact that people are working from home, right? Now, the question is, what do I do with that real estate? Well, you can repurpose this by adding some digital dimension. And I think this is really where the new next wave of growth could come. So, Mark, you're, you're actually saying something really interesting here, and, and I'm going to pull from your economics background. It's almost like you're treating capital flows the same, the data flows the same way as capital flows. That's right, right. Because I really think that most of the value today in the world is generated in three intangible assets anyway. And so mm -hmm. as you're generating that three intangible assets and not paying attention to the digital like it was a form of capital flow, it would be like missing part, the larger part of the equation. And I think and that will reshape that, the environment of investments. And to accelerate that one more level, since we're now three levels above where most people are going to understand, and I'm not intentionally doing it, but only because I, want, I get to pick your brain here, is <laughs> sure. um, that exponential leap is really about a control on data flows. And the way we have controls on capital flows must be applied the same way from a regulatory perspective. We don't have That's that right. framework. 
No, and this is why I think it's, it's challenging, right, uh, Ray, that if we're not creating the framework, we're only exactly. going to create a, a duopoly of most likely U.S. and China relationship. And everybody Sorry, else, guys, I'm writing a book on duopolies. I'm writing a book on duopolies. I'm going to send you my manuscript. I'm going to send you my manuscript early. Don't steal. Guys, um, borrow. And I want your right? ideas. Yeah, <laughs> if you're late at night, you know, you're on a different wavelength, right? So... Uh, <laughs> I think it's, it's exactly this, guys. I think Yuval Arari, the, uh, the the author of uh, Homo Sapiens, right, said in Davos that if we're not careful about this, mm -hmm. country that are not able to create their digital infrastructure, they'll become data colonies. And that's mm -hmm. exactly thing, the challenge we're going to have. Good enough for me to provide you data because that will be digital enough to, to create that data, but not, not uh, develop enough to utilize this data for my own needs, for the improvement of my own performances, to create value that currently I can't create. And I think the fear that I'm having is that we are lacking this governance structure. This is why regulating the technology companies not to prevent them from being technology companies, to help them move mm -hmm. to the next level of the social purpose. Wow, wow, what a For those of you watching, you're gonna have to rewind and listen to this again because there's some super- <laughs> We accelerated it like this. Sorry about Literally that. Literally <laughs> in the last three minutes, he's dropping some big, that. big nuggets of wisdom. Um, Okay, I want to know a little bit more about AI Republic uh, in, sure. in the book itself. I'm talking about data streams and impact of AI on industries. But my question is, and perhaps you can relate it back to your book. The, yes. you've, 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 you've said, you know, the post-pandemic world will see the rise of new normals, plural. Uh, why do you use the plural form of normals? And tell us what is even more true now because of the pandemic uh, that right. in your book. So to start, uh, Vala, when we started to write the book with Danny and Terence, which are co-founders of Nexus Frontier Tech, we wanted to say technology like AI is in the hands of very few people. Many startups, they only have two ways, the merger and acquisition route, hoping somebody will acquire them or the IPO. Um, so technology companies acquire this, this, uh, this powerful innovation. They don't really scale it out they tend to use it for their own productivity. So the idea of our republics to think about democratizing artificial intelligence more and more, creating it like a, as a service. Uh, we're currently launching at Nexus something called the harvesting the, the data loop, which is the ability for a small set of data to create more of an intelligent set of data that can help the company to address their business challenges. So there's a whole conversation about, I think, the, uh, the power of technology if it's distributed and diffused, we see this like, uh, for example, the internet, that if it wasn't diffused, it would have not created the same amount of, of powerful transformation that he had. So that's the message of the book. Um, the new normals come with the fact that exactly what we're saying before also be right, the degree of disparity we have in around the world on the technology mm -hmm. output is so deep that we see the rise of a lot of discontinuities Country that have it, they've been thriving. Country that don't have it, they've been actually struggling and, and repressing. We see the rise of the K-shape recovery, which is yeah. structural, and with some company rise, some companies go down. And I think we see yeah. what I call the economic asymmetries. Country that are so far away from being uh, converging. And convergence was the major miracle of the 20th century when we created this globalization of supply chains. So I think this is why I'm referring to new normals. One of my uh, former students and now very good friend, Kerry, uh, working at Capgemini, is the one who originated the idea of the new normals in my circle. And I thought it was brilliant to yeah. talk about new normals. So we're preparing the expectation of the, this constant disparity, discontinuities and asymmetries. And how do we use technology to really close those gaps? And this is, I think, the conversation the next few months. Rather than having a conversation about I have it or I don't have it in terms of technology capacity, is how do I use technology to try to decrease the tension between this mm -hmm. asymmetry so that the case shape gets into a different shape, right? So I different, have, maybe an Asian symbol. So. I have a, a follow-up question. You know, you brought up the internet and, and new normals. When I think of the internet scale, I think of standards like TCP IP. Uh, Ray and I had the fortune of uh, talking to Vince Cerf recently. It's great to have the godfather of TCP IP on our show. When yes. I think of the web scaling, I think of HTTP. What's going to scale AI in the new normals? What, 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 is there a set, I mean, is it a set of standards? Is it a governing body? Is it just right realization that you know you have to be a technology data-driven company? What's going right. to ultimately help us scale the adoption and use of machine learning and other technologies under the AI? No, I, think, 
I think, well, at first, actually, time will be a critical factor because as you're collecting more data that can be transferred from one industry to the other, a small insurance company might be able to benefit from work on data collected from, from a bank. And the, the cross for the cross fertility uh, of cross fertilization of data from one sector to the other will be good enough. It might not be a 99% accuracy, but it might be 75, 80%. The for business is good enough. And then I think it's creating this pipeline that will be almost like uh, what we call a Nexus, the podder, which is the idea of having uh, mainly like a plug, a plug and play model in which many small companies that don't have the AI budgets, they'll be able to participate by having access to some form of machine learning that is already uh, integrated and developed for. So I see AI as a service and AI from black box, non-explainable to white box explainable, the major uh, driver that might really scale this. And if I was more skeptical, let's say one year ago about this, now I see more and more, uh, mainly because of the COVID-19, as more acceptance about AI is being actually permeated out there, I see more and more people willing to think about AI as a service rather than going into the scaremongering of AI being like the Terminator coming and take us over. <laughs> I like AI as a service. I like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mark, we could talk to you for the entire hour. This 20 minutes flew by. <laughs> Guys, I mean, I can I I cannot believe it. I, I thought this is the first question, right? And we are <laughs> we are just getting started. We, we're just gonna have to catch up late at night, uh, your time or my time. Um look, my last question is really quick and, and just yes or no, and 30 seconds or less. Um, yes. The way we fight wars for assets in the past, like oil and resources, are we? is that really what cyber, cyber terrorism is about on the ransomware, where we're fighting data wars at the moment? Um, are you seeing yeah. it in the same kind of geopolitical way? I see. I'm going to give you a 30-second answer, right? right? It's the same. We used to rob banks by going in and covering our head and say, this is a bank robbery. Today, we don't need to do this anymore because the entire value of a bank is no longer in the bank itself, right? It's in the digital infrastructure. So I see exactly the same. On a global level, we're shifting all of the value creation on a digital structure. So cybersecurity will be one of the big conversations to have. And I'd love to have more government talking about this. Unfortunately, I don't hear it yet. Wow. We need to get together. This is amazing. EMF is your new nuclear bomb is basically what you're saying. Ray, um, thanks for you know, a softball question that we could spend an hour talking about. <laughs> and and, and even said 30 seconds. Yeah, right? and he gave me 30 seconds. We're here with Mark Esquivel. This is even worse Mark than Esposito. the battery of my AirPods, guys. This is not fair. <laughs> I'm so sorry. We have to get together, definitely. We're here with Mark Esposito, co-founder and chief learning officer at Nexus Frontier Tech and more importantly, awesome author, Flip It, another great book to check out. Twitter at EXP underscore M-A-R-K. Mark, thanks for being on the show. You're awesome. Thank you, guys. Awesome. Take care, guys. Oh, yeah. the same, right? In social distancing, <laughs> we do this, right? Thanks, guys. Take care. Cheers. All right. As we transition, wow. thanks wow. to our awesome sponsor, Robots and Pencils. And who do we have next, Vala? What's going this on? This is what we call the cleanup hitter spot because we, this is a guest that comes in this and we're thinking the hit a grand slam. <laughs> so for those international audience, sorry for the baseball analogy, but Jeremy Gouchet, author, keynote speaker, and CEO of Trend Hunter. Jeremy's New York Times bestselling author and award-winning innovation expert and CEO of Trend Hunter, the world's largest firm with 3 billion views, 200,000 idea hunters from 150 million visitors. These numbers are ridiculously big. His team is uh, 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 relied on by 700 brands, billionaire CEOs, world leaders to predict and create the future. As a top innovation keynote speaker, Jeremy has number one most watched innovation keynote video on the internet. Over 20 million people online, 521,000 people and 694 live events. Jeremy has been described as new breed of trend spotter by Guardian, an eagle eye by Global TV, an oracle by the Globe and Mail, and uh, an intellectual can of Red Bull. I love that. that I mean, that's it, drop the mic, that's unbelievable. His new book, Create the Future, is the number one best-selling strategic uh, management category. Create the Future is a tactical guide for disruptive thinking, innovation and change, paired with Innovation Handbook, an upgraded version of his award-winning book, Exploiting Chaos. You can find uh, uh, all of his work on Twitter at Jeremy, G-U-T-S-C-H-E. Welcome, Jeremy, to Disrupt TV. Thanks for having me on the show. I had to shorten your bio, my friend. You only have 20 minutes. <laughs> You've done a lot. 
Uh, well, you know, it's funny. I, I, I listen to him like, geez, that's that's way too long. I wish they just said I'm like the idea guy. As a kid, my whole story in a simple nutshell is that all I ever wanted to do was figure out my little business idea. I couldn't figure out what it was. So before YouTube, before Facebook, I coded up Trend Hunter as a crowdsource place for people to share ideas. What I didn't know is that so many of us are looking for inspiration. And so that's how the traffic went from thousands to millions of billions. But but really, I was just a guy looking for my own idea, hoping a trend hunter in Europe or a trend hunter in Dubai or a trend hunter in South America would submit the little idea that would inspire me. Jeremy, that's amazing. Amazing. It is a great story. I've seen you speak at least a dozen times at different conferences. Um, and uh, now we're going to talk a little about you and your new book. But hey, why, why do most people miss out on realizing their full potential? And what can they do to change that? What, what is it's that a, secret that people are missing? So, well, that's, that's the thing that really drove me in writing Create the Future, which is a book about you know chaos and innovation. But it's this idea that when things are going well, your own success actually blocks you from finding your next level. We have neurological traps. We have uh, mm. the difficulty of seeing the subtle ideas in, in front of us. And, and as a result, you just see hundreds of the world's most iconic innovators get disrupted by things they invented that they didn't take seriously. We miss the ideas so close within our grasp. And so uh, after... I think my company now has worked on about 10,000 custom projects for 800 brands. And in this run, what I found most interesting is so often your big idea, it is within your grasp. But you need to sort of better understand the traps that are blocking you from realizing your own potential. And so I, 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 have, this, um, I have this fun example, actually, and it'll explain everything about how I wrote the book. And it's, uh, it's about horses and space. Should I go there? Horses in space. space. All right, horses let's go there. What, what is that about? Okay. So there are no horses in space, but you Why are smart and clever people. All your listeners are smart and clever. You should expect there to be two horses in space. And actually, if you like horse dimensions, which we all like talking about, you should expect those horses to be four foot eight and a half inches wide. Now, this doesn't make sense just yet, and you don't know why this is going to cause you to be a better innovator, but stick with me. And uh, I'll give you a couple thousand years of history in a minute, and you'll know why. You see, there's no horses in space. If there were two, they'd be four, eight and a half wide. And the reason why I would expect there, them to be there, and so should you, is that that's the width of NASA's solid rocket boosters, which were determined not coincidentally by the width of two horses, but exactly because of the width of two horses. Now, that's weird, but if you want to understand it, you have to go back pretty far in time. You have to go back to the Roman Empire. The Romans had the biggest empire and controlled the largest land because of the innovation of the two-horse Roman war chariot. The chariot tore up the highways, the dirt roads of Europe. And if you were a little farmer pulling your wagon through one of those highway roads, you might break a wagon wheel in a rut. If you were a clever farmer, you would measure the width of the rut and you would realize it's four foot eight and a half inches wide, just like the width of the two-horse Roman war chariot. So pretty soon all wagons, four, eight and a half. We start making wagon ways, which are carts pulled on rails by horses for gold mining out of the mines. In absence of what measurement to use, we set the tracks apart, four foot, eight and a half inches. Pretty soon the Europeans make the same sort of conclusion when they make the first trains and they put them on tracks that are four foot, eight and a half inches wide. American tracks, not connected. Trains, not manufactured in Europe. They choose four foot, eight and a half inches wide. We got all of the railways to make room for bigger, better, faster trains. We choose four, eight and a half. Some trains, not all, that go 200 miles an hour, go on tracks that are four foot, eight and a half inches wide. So when NASA needs to ship the solid rocket booster from Utah down to Florida for a launch, they have to piece it together on train tracks that are four foot, eight and a half inches wide. And if you look at the solid rocket booster in a picture on a track, you'll see it's a little bit wider than the train track but it doesn't change the fact that the width of the solid rocket boosters for outer space were determined by two horses' butts. Unbelievable. <laughs> my horses are smaller. <laughs> well, we want innovation to happen. Everybody does, but not everyone breaks from the path. And that's effectively what I wanted to sort of conquer in the new book, a book about like uh, tactics and techniques 
for better breaking the things that hold you back, particularly in times of chaos or change. And I launched it March 12th, which was a good time for chaos. And my oh. joke is it's available in airport bookstores everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Which airports are you at? I know. Right? Awesome. Well, awesome. We know they're there. We know they're there. What a great story. What a great... Jeremy, I think it great was uh, Peter Drucker who said, um, ideas are a commodity, strategy is art. And when I think of strategy and execution, I think of habits. I think life's right. most uh, biggest influence is habit. So how do everyday habits uh, impact our ability to generate creative ideas and focus on innovation? The, the fundamental problem is that we get caught in a path of our own success. And when things are going well, uh, we want to repeat what was working. Mm. And the metaphor I like to use is that a million years ago, we were hunters in an eater be eaten world. And we can hunt, we can adapt, we know how to do this. But 10,000 years ago, we planted the first seeds and we became farmers. And when we did that, suddenly we could thrive, we could plan for winter, gather in larger groups. And so we put in rules, policies, procedures, structures to repeat whatever led to last year's harvest. And now after 10,000 years of evolution, we repeat whatever led to last year's harvest. So I've spent a lot of time studying. We've studied now, I think 50,000 people that have done our trend hunter assessment to understand what are your hunter traits versus your farmer traits, the instincts, the traps. And, and habits is such an interesting word because the habits so often get formed by our own success and our desire to farm. Innately, you have the ability to hunt, to adapt, to be good in a time of chaos like right now, but, but we get a little bit held, held back. And in short, our farming success causes us to be repetitive, protective, and complacent. Those are the three traits. And our hunter instincts are to be insatiable, to be curious, and to be willing to destroy how things were done before. And some of that sounds scary, ooh, willing to destroy. But the more you practice adapting, practice curiosity, practice insatiability of looking for new ideas, the, the more it actually gets formed in your brain. And I, I can go on a pretty long tangent about talking about your brain's wiring. So maybe I'll just pause it there and, and see where we're at. I just want our audience to know that you know, if you're not familiar with Jeremy's work, he's working with the biggest companies in the world, Fortune 500, but he's also working with NASA on a project to land on Mars. So the degree and spectrum of innovation and the work that Trent Hunter is doing is just incredible. I just want our audience to know and, and definitely, you know, read, read his book because it speaks to incredible, incredible ideas. And by the way, I appreciate how much of a historian you are in all your answers. We're going back thousands of years as as where the seeds were planted so very cool very cool great go ahead it's so interesting to think of history and it's interesting to think of history in let's say a time like now so i'll, I'll give you one of my favorite little tidbits so i had written a book about called exploiting chaos which is actually what i rewrote to make create the future and i published it in 2008 and then the world went chaotic and all of a sudden I, my whole career break was i became a chaos guy helping a lot of fortune 500 ceos almost contagiously, you help one, you get to help another. And I learned a lot from them. And that's why I wanted to rewrite the book. But, but what I learned that's so interesting is that chaos obviously causes us to retreat, but not always. And when you look historically, when you look at those historic lessons, it's pretty mind boggling. So I mean, first of all, just in terms of recession and times of uncertainty, recession, the companies founded in times of recession include Disney, CNN, Hyatt, Apple, Fortune Magazine, Forbes, Uber, Airbnb, Pinterest, Uber, Slack. And I can just go on and on and on. Because in these times of chaos and change, consumer needs rapidly evolve. And if you spot those needs, you can win. So if you want a history story, a good one would be Fortune Magazine. So Fortune was founded just four months after the 1909 Wall Street crash. That doesn't really make sense. It was founded right after the crash. But what really doesn't make sense at first, is that it was priced at $1 an issue during the Great Depression. And in, in that time, $1 could buy you a wool sweater. So you wouldn't think it should win. It's a luxury publication, more expensive than anything before, about business. But actually, what happens is that people lost their job for the first time in an economy that was driven by business, not industrial revolution or agriculture. And so Fortune offered a glimpse behind those boardroom doors. How did I get here? When might we emerge? Word it differently, Fortune was an answer to a new consumer need. And by the end of the depression, they ended up with 500,000 subscribers and $7 million in modern day profit. 
as a luxury business publication during the Great Depression. Unbelievable. So these lessons are interesting because right now your consumers, your you, you, whoever you are, whatever market you're in, people are at home, sort of paralyzed to exit the house, wearing mm -hmm. a mask, unable to do anything. And this is a stage of crisis. Crisis is different than chaos. But what happens is when we emerge, well, all your competitors will have spent a year trying to figure out what to do. Other competitors will be gone. You could enter different markets and your consumer needs will change by the minute for nine months. So <laughs> right now, yeah. market trends and insight and trying to really study where your customer's at. I mean, that's now a CEO level problem and, and something that impacts all of us. Just a quick note, Ray. Uh, Ray and I had the founder of Zoom on our show three years ago. This year, his wealth has gone up by 23 billion. So, yeah, that helps, right? It's yeah. more than like every year. What's a pandemic among friends? You know? <laughs> By the way, he was the most humble, most generous, the most, and he still is. Uh, but but we didn't know that we were going to talk to a mega billionaire. <laughs> Go ahead, Ray. So. No, no. I, look, you spend a lot of time looking at trends, right? And what what makes something a mega trend versus here's a trend or here's kind okay. of like, oh, it's a, maybe a mic, mac, you know, it's like a micro trend, right? I get this question as the trend hunter guy. And what I would do is, is, is sort of add a little depth to how you think about uh, trends and give you a range of a spectrum. And from small to big, on the smallest end, you have the things that are a fad or the thing trending on Twitter, and you can't really base a business on that. On the other end of thing, you have you have patterns or megatrends, which are huge overarching things like, like AI and like big things that generally people know. What you're looking for is actually something in the middle, which would be an insight. And an insight would be when you see several examples of something that's working out really well. And the, exam the example might be, if I saw Red Bull, the energy drink, that's just an idea. But if I saw caffeinated beverages, caffeinated potato chips, caffeinated, uh, you know, some something on pop, um, then I might think, well, maybe there's an opportunity for caffeinated chocolate. And so the insight might be alternatives to coffee. It might be the shortness of time that we all have. It might be the need for energy and excitement in our lives. But the point would be that mega trends are interesting, but everyone knows them. What's trending on Twitter is too no. small. So you're looking for that thing in the middle, which would be there where there's multiple examples. And that's where uh, something sort of trending or interesting. And that's where you find an untapped opportunity and something that could make your business, you know, or your career really thrive. When you think of cryptocurrency, I mean, when did it become a mega trend or is it a mega trend? You know, uh, it, when, yeah, when I'm mixed. So my personal, when I put cryptocurrency in a keynote, I'll show you all the cool, wonderful things that blockchain brings us. But then I'll show you that it uses more energy than the country of Sweden right now to mine Bitcoin because of the <laughs> server farms that are doing nothing but hunting for transactions to make. And, and if I tried telling that to my mother, she would not believe me until I walked her through all the steps. And so, you know, here I am pushing for an eco world of sustainability. I think it's cool to have an electric car and put a solar panel on the roof. Uh, but then there's this brand new runaway trend of mining for cryptocurrency that's heartbreaking because you just look at it and you're like, ah, oh, I get what we want to do with this. But then I just, ah, oh, I don't know what to do. Now, to get back to your thing, when is it a, when is it a, you know, when does that become a bigger trend that's runaway? I mean, it, it, it's sort of a measure of when the momentum starts to capture enough early adopters that it starts becoming a thing in an industry and people are chasing it. Uh, but I do, that's a category of something I have in the world of the dangers of, let's say, AI and cryptocurrency. Match those together, make a movie, and I'll show you how we destroy ourselves <laughs> as humanity. Right. Amazing. We have the trend hunter here live. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I think it's yeah, really good. It's, it's a really good way to talk about trends. I think people typically, you know, hop onto one little small idea, try to make it a big deal, but there's no business model behind it. And I think that's super helpful. Um, so tell us about the book, right? I mean, you rewrote this for a reason. You rewrote it because of the chaos that's going on. Um, what's the first step people can take your book with and start going and sure. taking your advice and moving so, on to tomorrow? Uh, the book is two sided, and the one side is yep. called Innovation Handbook, and that's the total rewrite of exploring chaos but i rewrote it by adding hundreds of different tactics at the end of well 
dozens of tactics at the end of each chapter. So hundreds of tactics in general that we've learned from our clients. And then the news side is all about the ability to change. And, and what I really wanted to do is make, the book is half pictures, so you know it's good. But uh, what I wanted to try to do <laughs> was collect the tactics because I think we've already reached a point where you get that innovation and change is something you want to do, but how do you do it? So I'll give you an example. People say, oh, failure is good. you got to fail. Cool. Uh, I don't know what that means. I want, sure, we need some failure. I want the other guy and the other team to fail, but let's, you know, <laughs> let's make sure my project works. So how do you do that? And so examples of tactics would be making failure more tolerable. Um, our clients at Adidas will actually give you a host a project funeral if your if your project doesn't work out to celebrate the effort that you put in. Our client Brian Copeland at Staples will give you a written permission slip to fail. That means this is a project we know has higher risk. We think that it should work. At the end of the year, he hosts Penguin Awards to celebrate the penguins that took the first leap into the icy waters. At the BBC, they have a gambling fund for ideas that fail the normal screening process. One of the ideas that failed the screening process, The Office, their biggest hit in, in modern history. Um, and and uh, the, the point would be that I'm, uh, that I'm trying to make is that now is the time during COVID working from home to start investing and in learning all of the tactics to make innovation happen because we all get that we want it. We all get that changes is now going to be upon us. I don't need to read another book or listen to another keynote that says change and you know innovation is big. Just show me what to do. I'm ready to go. Put me in the game. And I think that this crisis phase is tough to do much in because mm -hmm. everyone's at home wearing a mask, all this stuff. But what happens next year in 2021 is a land grab. And you're going to be surprised. If you thought it was wild when Amazon came out and bought a grocery store, Cool. Get ready for what's next because you're going to see every possible brand from every possible angle now able to cross boundaries uh, and really do different things. And at the same time, you'll also see a whole flight of people and companies that are gone. You can get Jeremy's book online, but if you happen to be at an airport, get in that bookstore and pick up the book. Pick up the book. <laughs> you, uh, 20 minutes with Grand Jeremy Cochet is not enough. Grand it's slam, not enough. So, yeah, that was awesome. That was awesome. We're here with the CEO of Trend Hunter and author of his new book. Definitely check it out, Creating the Future. Um, and more importantly, um, you can catch him on Twitter. Um, and, and more importantly, you know, on Twitter, it's J-E-R-E-M-Y-G-U-T-S-C-H-E. And of course, hey, thanks for being here on Disrupt TV. You're Thank terrific. you so much. Thank you, sir. Ray, Ray, my, my brain is spinning. Like three extraordinary guests. Uh, and I'm telling you, we could have talked the entire hour with each of them. Yeah, we're going to catch up with them in the green room afterwards. But oh my yeah, God, just, it's not enough awesome. time. That was awesome. It's uh, not enough time. So, um, but yeah. I wanted to thank our, our, our sponsor, Robots and Pencils, before we talk about what's going on in episode 212. Um, and of course, um, that won't be next week because something else is happening. So turn it over to you, Vala. What's going on? What's happening next week? Uh, one of my favorite uh, conferences in the world next week. Uh, we're not going to have a show because Ray, myself, and our 400 of our closest friends are going to be tuned into uh, Constellation Connect Enterprise 10th year anniversary, hashtag CCE2020. I hope that's the right hashtag. I believe it is. Um, correct me if it's not. So, uh, you know, keep an eye on Ray, myself, and some of the best and brightest executives in the world for two days. We're going to be using hashtag CCE2020 to just share, learn, connect, reconnect. Uh, normally it's in person at Half Moon Bay at the Ritz, but this year, first time ever, uh, we're going to do this virtual. Ray, uh, talk to us about next week, please. Yeah, we've got uh, an action pack two days. Uh, on Tuesday, the 27th, we're going to be talking about technologies and their impact, talking about AI and automation. We even talk about space. We talk about cloud. We talk about, um, you know, the impact in general of all these technologies and what's what's happening. What are those new technologies and, and what it means? Uh, we also do our BT150 awards. People have been mailed their uh, little awards. They're going to be out. We do a fun little uh, recognition ceremony that's going to happen. Um, and of course, we start the morning with uh, coffee and we end the evening with a chocolate tasting with Guitard. Uh, and then on Wednesday, we're going to start the morning with tea 
We got some great speakers. Oh, Monday, actually Tuesday, we missed Tom Peters in the at lunch. Vala and I are going to interview Tom Peters in a fireside chat. Uh, and then on Wednesday, um, we've got Mandeep Bry from the Values Compass. You've seen her here at Disrupt TV. Uh, and we also have Alex Osterwalder um, for the uh, lunch uh, keynote. Uh, we're talking about business issues, business trends, what's happening in different industries, we're talking about CX and marketing and finance and planning. All those are going to be hit. And then in the evening, we're going to be doing a little uh, wine tasting with Brian Carter himself from Brian Carter Cellars. Uh, so yeah, so it's fully action-packed, uh, full networking platform. Attendees get a chance to connect with anybody at any point in time. Uh, so that's kind of what we're doing. Uh, but we are back on November 6th. Uh, and who do we have on episode 212? I'm just reflecting when you mentioned these keynote speakers. For those of you who may not know, Tom Peters is a Hall of Fame Thinkers 50 inductee last year. And Alex Osvaldo is number four Thinkers 50. So uh, uh, these are world-renowned keynote speakers. Um, anyway, uh, I'm looking forward to next week. Catch us. Hashtag CCE2020. Follow Constellation R on Twitter for more details. Okay, now, uh, two weeks from now, we're back on Disrupt TV, episode 212. We're going to touch uh, 649 interviews, so we haven't quite touched 650. We have Brad Killinger, CEO of Spacian Analytics. We have Bob Stutz, president of engineering and operations at SAP. He's also president of customer experience. And we have two of the smartest uh, enterprise analysts in the world joining us as well. Nicole France, vice president, principal analyst at Constellation Research. And Liz Miller, who is the CMO Whisperer, she's also President Principal Analyst at Constellation Research. So actually, we're going to have 650 interviews. Oh, it's four people. So uh, it's going to be amazing episode 212. <clears throat> Thank you for watching today's episode. Again, uh, we really appreciate your engagement. And if you have uh, recommendations in terms of guests you want to see on Disrupt, please send Ray and myself, connect to us on Twitter, send us email, and we'll definitely consider as we book the rest of the year. Ray, closing remarks. No. Hey, have a great weekend. We'll see you all next week and uh, have some fun. Be safe. And of course, uh, it's going to be a very, very interesting fall. So enjoy. Bye, everyone.